Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Max Kaplan, and with me is Iku Tsujihiro. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Maurer to talk about the Peloponnesian War and what a classical era conflict can teach us about modern day security issues. Professor John H. Maurer is the Alfred Thayer Mann Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy and has served as the Chair of Strategy and Policy Department at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He is the author or editor of books examining the outbreak of the First World War, military interventions in the developing world, naval rivalry and arms control between the two world wars, and a study of Winston Churchill's views on British foreign policy and grand strategy. He also serves as a senior research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, on the editorial board of Orbis, a journal of world affairs, and associate editor of Diplomacy and Statecraft. In addition, he has served on the Secretary of the Navy's Advisory Committee on Naval History. In recognition of his service and contribution to professional military education, he has received both the U.S. Navy's Meritus Civilian Service Award and Superior Civilian Service Award. Dr. Marr, could you just tell me a little bit uh, about what brought you to maritime security in general, and then specifically your initial exposure to the Peloponnesian War, what grabbed you about this particular conflict within the context of maritime security? Thucydides and I go way back. As an undergraduate, I took a course in international relations theory. It was a wonderful course. It had some of the greatest books in international relations. We read Hans Morgenthau's book, the classic textbook, politics among nations. We also read A World Restored, Henry Kissinger's famous book, Henry Kissinger's first book on international relations, which was his doctoral thesis. And one of the textbooks in that course was Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. So I was 17, 18 years old at the time and was exposed to Thucydides for the first time. And right away, the book grabs you and you realize what a rich book it is in not only talking about international relations, but talking about politics, war, societies at war, how war changes societies, how countries that come out of a war, their social, economic, political structures are changed and shaped by war. It's a gripping account, and it's written by a failed general, Thucydides someone who has seen his country be defeated and himself has been a failure as a military commander. So it very much speaks from the heart. There's passion emotion in the book as well. What's fascinating is that the professor who was teaching the class was a young Paul Wolfowitz, who was then on the faculty at Yale University. And Paul Wolfowitz was a terrific teacher. He, he was a wonderful mentor. And that class has stuck with me these many years later. It was just a great course. And Thucydides was one of the reasons why that course was so great, but also an expert teacher who was able to guide us uh, through that book. So as an undergraduate, I was first exposed to it. And then I also took courses in ancient history on Greek history. The late Donald Kagan at Yale University had a course on Greek history. 
He also had a course on why wars occur, which he turned into his book on the origins of war and the preservation of peace. And so I reread Thucydides several times as an undergraduate. And again, each time I read the book, I found something more in there. What a rich text it is. What a rich book it is. And I have found that through the years that every time I read Thucydides, I draw something new from it, some new insight, some new interpretation. So it's a wonderful book to read and reread. And that's one reason why it's a, a classic, of course, because a classic book, an important book, is a book that you can benefit from, from reading over and over again. Anyway, uh, that, that uh, introduction to Thucydides as an undergraduate was important to me, not only for understanding Thucydides, but also shaping my views about world politics, international relations, about war security studies. And so uh, that course as an undergraduate was formative for, for me, my intellectual development and my professional development. That's an excellent answer. So just to give some context for those less familiar with the Peloponnesian War, many of our listeners focus more on modern conflicts and international relations. Can you give a breakdown of the um, nature of the Athenians and the Dalian League versus the Spartans and the Peloponnesian League through a more modern lens of both political and force analysis? Just a wave top. What you see is a conflict here between two great powers, Athens on one side, Sparta on the other. Both of these great powers lead alliances. So one of the reasons why we can study profitably Thucydides today is that most conflicts around the world are not just one-on-one -on -one conflicts. They're larger conflicts that draw in and are part of coalition struggles. So when you're thinking about Russia attacking Ukraine today, it's not just a fight between Russia and Ukraine. It has become a proxy war in which the United States and our allies, our democratic allies, support Ukraine against Russia. Russia has also drawn support from other countries as well that has enabled it to continue fighting. So the war between Athens and Sparta, this great power war, is also a war between competing coalitions. And so one of the wonderful aspects of the Thucydides account is that it gives you some insight into coalitions at war. In addition, one of the other factors to consider with Thucydides is that war is not just a test of great powers and of coalitions. It's also a test of societies, economies, and political systems as well. This uh, account of Thucydides puts in stark relief a contest between a more open form of government, a democracy in Athens, and an authoritarian regime in Sparta. So what you see here is also a clash of ideologies between a more open form of government and a more closed form of government. Athens is the leader of a league of democracies. <clears throat> the United States today is a leader of a league of democracies. Sparta is the leader of a coalition that is a more uh, authoritarian regimes, typically oligarchies, governments of the few. Uh, Sparta itself is one of the most authoritarian regimes you can imagine. 
they have an internal security problem. Sparta had conquered a neighboring state, Messenia, and enslaved the peoples of Messenia, forcing them to work in the fields, growing the food that the Spartans then eat. The Messenians, known as helots, these state slaves, they hate, they hate the Spartan overlords. They want to rebel against Sparta. And essentially every 70 or 80 years, there's a major uprising of helots against Spartan rule. And the Spartans suppress, suppress the helots on these occasions. So there's a major internal security problem that Sparta has in controlling its own population. It's a weakness. Thucydides tells us that if you want to understand Spartan strategy and foreign policy, the most important thing you have to remember is that internal security is the most important factor in the minds of Sparta's leaders, this internal security problem. So if you go to Sparta's leaders and you say, what's the greatest threat to you? You don't, the Spartan leaders wouldn't say, oh, it's Athens. They wouldn't say that. They would say it's the Helots. It's our own internal uh, threat. Today, we see many regimes too, where the internal threat, internal security is the most important security problem that a regime has. Authoritarian regimes have to keep their people in check one way or another. So Thucydides' account is rich because it's great powers at war. It's also a case of coalitions at war. It's also a case of an ideological struggle of a more open form of government against a more closed form of government. So this text is rich for understanding today's uh, conflicts as well around the world, which are also based on ideology. When you think about the contest in Asia between uh, China and the United States, you think about how the United States uh, is the leader of uh, democracy contesting an authoritarian one-party rule in China. So Thucydides gives us some insight into the nature of all these different struggles. Hey, that's that's an excellent answer. Getting specifically into coalition warfare, both of the great powers in this conflict had large coalitions of other Greek states that they were working with. What can the um, Peloponnesian War tell us about um, the nature of coalition warfare? What are some of the lessons that can be drawn for modern states working, having to work with large coalitions? Thucydides lays out for us that there are two different types of coalitions. One coalition is uh, a, a type of coalition is where one state is larger than the others, dominant, more dominant power. That's Athens. Athens is a leader of a coalition block numbering hundreds of other Greek states. Athens is the strongest of them all. Athens is stronger because it has one of the largest populations. Probably Athens is the largest uh, Greek state in the Greek world. So it has a demographic advantage. They also have silver mines on their territory at a place called Larium. This silver mine gives Athens wealth to be able to create a currency that is the standard for a large common market, an economic block that Athens leads as well. So you have here a trading empire dominated by one state. By the way, Athens looks at any attempt by its allies to secede 
from this block, this empire, they see that as something that has to be ruthlessly crushed. And so here's a dominant state ruling over a group of weaker states. On the other hand, Sparta. Sparta is a great power, but its most important allies are also major powers. Its most important allies are Corinth, a major Greek state, a wealthy state, a trading state, and Thebes, another state that has a large land army. In the Spartan coalition, Sparta is the leader, but it's not the boss. Often it will propose strategies or foreign policy, and its allies, Corinth and Thebes, will balk and say, no, no, we don't agree with that. So Sparta has to negotiate with its allies. Now, its allies are dependent upon Sparta. Sparta is the leader that provides the military muscle, that provides security for Corinth and Thebes. But at the same time, Corinth and Thebes can stand enough on their own feet that Sparta can't boss them around. They have to find a consensus with their major allies, Corinth and Thebes. So this is a different type of alliance, more of an alliance of equals, as opposed to the Athenian alliance, where you have the dominant state being the leading state. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Sparta is an authoritarian regime. Its principal allies are oligarchies, governments of the few, more authoritarian than Athens. But yet, within the alliance itself, it's more democratic in some way. Again, Sparta has to consult, get consensus, agreement with its major allies, Corinth and Thebes. Athens, on the other hand, it can dominate its alliance. When Athens goes to war, everybody in the alliance goes to war as well. And if an alliance member of Athens decides to revolt, the Athenians will come back and crush that revolt. So they're authoritarian within their alliance, even though within their own country, Athens, they're a democracy. So Thucydides gives us two types of alliances here. One, a more authoritarian alliance system where there's a dominant state and then satellite states that do what the master state tells. And then the other, a coalition more or less of equals in which coalition strategy and aims are put together by consensus, by negotiation. That's a really interesting point. And you actually mentioned the um, how Athens would go in and um, crush dissent within the alliance structure. And obviously, one of the most famous examples of that, um, both within the ancient history field and within the IR field, is the Melian Dialogue. For our listeners, could you ex- sort of explain the Melian dialogue, both within the context of the Peloponnesian War and as an example of realism, and then just give your thoughts on sort of what you think it can tell us about modern international relations dynamics? This is uh, the Melian dialogue, th- Athens' destruction of this Greek state, Milos, an island state in the Aegean, that uh, this uh, story that Thucydides tells is one of the most famous in uh, his account of the Peloponnesian War. Many in international relations theory classes look at this example to draw some important lessons, some theories, models for understanding international relations. On a very simple level, what is often taken away from Thucydides' account is of the destruction of Milos by Athens, is that 
this is a case of the strong getting its way, bullying the weak. As you said, realism. There's realities of power out there, disparities in power, and that the strong get their way, the weak must accommodate themselves to the strong. In a very simple-minded way, that's one of the big lessons or takeaways that you can get from studying Thucydides. And that interpretation is not wrong. Uh, and it's one that has resonated down through the uh, ages uh, that people do take away, that there are disparities of power and stronger states uh, have the power. And if they choose to use it, can uh, force weaker states, compel them to do the will of the stronger state. So that is one takeaway, uh, a simple, straightforward, clear uh, takeaway. But the actual story itself is like most of the world that we live in, more complicated than that. Uh, and Thucydides is such a rich text because he doesn't uh, dodge the complexity. It's not just the strong can get their way with regard to the weak. The weak must do what the strong want. It's, it's also a, a much more interesting tale that he tells in great detail. In the story of Milos, Milos is a neutral state it is not part of either the Athenian Empire or the Spartan uh, Peloponnesian League. It's not part of either alliance block, but it has a strategic location. Its location in the mouth, the opening to the Aegean, is such that a fleet operating out of Milos can work to disrupt Athens's sea lines of communication. Athens its empire is linked together by its navy and by trade. If Athens loses command of the sea, then Athens loses its empire, it loses the war. Athens is dependent upon food being imported from where? Modern day Ukraine, that region north of the Black Sea. Athens has a large population and cannot feed itself. It has to have imported grain come in. And that grain comes from that fertile region that today we call Ukraine. And so Athens is very much concerned that Milos cannot be a base for a Peloponnesian fleet that could operate into the Aegean to cut that grain supply chain, to cut that sea line of communication that links Athens to uh, modern-day Ukraine. So Athens looks at Milos and uh, turns to Milos and says, you can't be neutral. You have to be part of our empire. They want to compel Milos to be part of the Athenian empire. And they're doing this because in 427 BCE, Milos was undoubtedly used as a naval base by the Peloponnesian League that sortied a fleet into the Aegean in that year. In 416, Athens is now saying to Milos, we're not going to let that happen again. We're going to make sure that Milos is secure and cannot be used as a base. So for Athens, toward the people of Milos, the Melians, it is you're either for us or against us. You have to choose. You can't be neutral. Uh, Milo says, no, we want to remain neutral. They want to uh, stay out of either league, even though their neutrality actually favors the Peloponnesian League. So the Athenians are correct to say that Milos really isn't neutral in some way. It can be used, exploited 
by Athens's archenemy, Sparta. As a consequence, Milos is told they have to capitulate, that they have to let the Athenians in and let the Athenians take control of the island. Now, the leaders of Milos are oligarchs, government of the few. They say no, but they don't ask the people of Milos. So the people of Milos are along for the ride. Their leaders have said, we're going to stand up and fight. Even though if Milos loses, it means the killing of all the Melian menfolk and selling into slavery their women and children. Why don't the oligarchs ask the people what they want, whether they want to fight or not? Again, the oligarchs are dooming their own people to annihilation. Fascinating tale here of looking at the internal dynamics within Milos. Well, Athens, because they are stronger in 416 BCE, they undertake a campaign. They eventually do beat Milos, capture Milos. They kill off uh, the adult males, sell the women and children into slavery, and then they plant um, uh, Athenians on the island of Milos so it can no longer be used as a base by the Peloponnesian League, a naval base. So this story is much more complicated and rich in its detail. Now, Thucydides, when he writes about Athens, the story he has to tell about Athens is it's a tragedy. He is showing that Athens is behaving in this brutal way toward its allies and toward neutrals like Milos. And what goes around comes around. Because in the next year, Athens undertakes a major expedition to the island of Sicily. Actually, that's that's another question I, I was hoping to ask about real quick, yes. is the, uh, the Sicilian expedition and its example as imperial overreach, both as just within the, the broader context of imperial overreach and then as a maritime operation. What can the Sicilian expedition teach modern maritime powers? Uh, yes. And um, uh, when it comes to the Sicilian campaign, this is one of the great turning points in the struggle, the multi-generational struggle between Athens and Sparta. And uh, what Thucydides is telling us is that uh, Athens has behaved in a brutal way toward allies and neutrals. Well, this can go around, come around, and Athens is also going to suffer defeat and potential extermination as well. Arrogant behavior will build coalitions, will lead to your own defeat. So he's arguing there should be some prudence, some restraint shown in the actions of the strong toward the weak, because if they don't, eventually, eventually the strong will be brought down as well. And that's why I say his account is a great tragedy, just like the great tragedies, plays that are going on at Athens at this time that have come down to our own time. Now, with regard to the Sicily campaign itself, Athens has a number of uh, factors that are driving it, motivations that are leading it on this expedition. One is Sicily, like Ukraine, is a place where grain is grown in abundance and can then be exported outside of Sicily. And Athens would like to have access to that grain. In addition, by seizing control of Sicily, they can deny grain to the Peloponnesian League, in particular to Corinth. Now, standing in the way of Athenian dominance of Sicily is another Greek state, Syracuse. 
Syracuse after Athens is probably the largest in population, largest population uh, of any Greek state. It's a powerful state. It has its own ambitions for empire. It wants to dominate Sicily. Syracuse is a Greek city. It's a colony of Corinth. It aligns itself with the Peloponnesian League. Athens wants to take control of Sicily to deny, deny Syracuse from dominating that region. And so Athens undertakes a major expedition of navy and army to try to take control of Sicily with the resources of Sicily, not just the grain, but also the wealth of Sicily, the population of Sicily, this will make Athens so strong that the Peloponnesian League won't be competitive in any way. So there are good motivations there from a strategic perspective of why Athens is doing this. And you can't understand the Melian dialogue and the uh, extinction of the Melians without understanding that Athens is looking to undertake this campaign in a distant theater in Sicily, and they want to be secure in the Aegean by making sure Milos isn't a naval base for the Peloponnesian League. They want to be secure at home before undertaking this expedition further away. The campaign itself, though, which begins in 415 BCE, becomes bogged down. And over the next two years, Athens would end up suffering a major defeat in which they lose the fleet that was sent out there. About 40 to 50% of its navy is destroyed there. It also loses substantial number of ground troops as well. And so uh, this is a, a colossal military defeat for Athens and shifts the balance of power in the Greek world to where Sparta and its allies have an opportunity to go and defeat Athens. All right. I think um, Iku had a couple of last questions for you. Yes. Thank you. Athens is considered one of history's great maritime powers. Their control of the sea gave them their empire and security, yet they ended up losing the war. What lessons about maritime security can be taken from the Peloponnesian War, whether it be tactical, operational, or strategic, and to follow up the question, is there any currency power or a country that should reflect this lesson? Well, the United States, its position in the world today is very much based on having a strong Navy. The ability of the United States to support allies in Europe, Asia, the Middle East, depends upon the ability of the United States Navy to control sea lines of communication to those regions. If the United States doesn't have a powerful Navy, if its Navy can't move uh, resources, capabilities, forces to these distant theaters, the United States then becomes a major regional power confined to the Western Hemisphere. And one of the big debates in American history is how much does the United States want to be engaged outside of the hemisphere? How much does it want to be engaged in underwriting the security of partners, allies uh, in Europe, in Asia, the Middle East, Africa? So maritime power, naval power is the basis for the United States global presence around the world, its ability to support allies militarily. Same thing was the case with Athens. Athens' dominant navy, uh, is what enabled it to have a, a great empire, its ability to protect its coalition partners within that empire. 
I've highlighted some of the negative aspects of the Athenian Empire, but it's important to keep in mind that Athens is not only underwriting the security, but also promoting wealth within its coalition, within its empire. So there were benefits of empire as well for those who were part of the Athenian Empire. And this wealth is what underwrites the Athenian Navy. The Athenians are able to pay a good salary to their rowers. And as a consequence of that, the Athenian Navy is not only strong in numbers, it also has a qualitative edge over its competitor navies, say from Corinth and Megara. So Athens' power, naval power, rests on its wealth, on its ability to trade. Just like the United States today, our naval power, power of any country, naval power, rests on wealth, on its industry, the infrastructure, shipbuilding industry, the ability to attract uh, good personnel to uh, serve uh, in the Navy. Uh, the bottom line is navies matter. They're the ability to hold together coalitions. And uh, for Athens, they typically win their battles at sea because of their qualitative edge. Even when they're outnumbered, they tend to win. Now, there are some upsets. One I just mentioned was Sicily, where the Syracusan Navy is able to defeat the Athenian fleet in the littorals, the close-in waters around the city of Syracuse. Also, in 405 BCE, the Athenian navy is taken by surprise and destroyed at the Battle of Aegospotami, again, in the littorals of the Dardanelles. So one of the great takeaways from studying the Peloponnesian War about naval operations is just how dangerous operations can be in littoral waters. And this is something that the United States can take to heart today. The closer you get to the People's Republic of China uh, in the Western Pacific, the more dangerous the environment is because of submarines, mines, cruise missiles, aircraft, and also ballistic missiles. So um, navies can be put in positions where they are endangered. The defeat of the Athenian Navy at Syracuse, the loss of sea control, local sea control in Syracuse, dooms that expedition to Sicily. The loss of the Athenian navy at Egospotami in 405 brings about the end of the Athenian empire. When they lose their navy, they also then lose their empire. And Athens is then starved into submission. Athens has a regime change. The Spartans impose a pro-Spartan authoritarian regime on the Athenian people. So this story of Athens is one that looks at the rise and fall of a great maritime power. I think that what you just said was an amazing summation, both of Thucydides' writings about the war and the war in general. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming on. I think we covered both why this war is so important to study within its own context, as well as within the context of the modern world. Is there any last points you would like to make before signing off? Yes, uh, I think it's a very important one, which is that Athens is this open form of government, a democracy. And Thucydides is writing about the tragedy of his country, Athens. And in it, he's telling us that this is Athens's war to lose. Athens should not lose this war to Sparta and the Peloponnesian League, and yet they do. And Thucydides tells us that the defeat of Athens 
is due to the internal politics of democracy, that Athens is caught up in what we would call political polarization of competing political leaders fighting against each other for dominance within this democracy. And as a consequence, it leads to strategic dysfunction on the part of Athens, that Athens cannot pursue a consistent, coherent strategy with regard to its enemy, Sparta. If Athens had shown either more restraint in its foreign policy and strategy, like one of its leaders, uh, Nicias, wanted to do, or if it had been much more expansive and dynamic, like another one of its leaders, Alcibiades, wanted to do, either one of these courses of action would have led to Athenian victory over the Peloponnesian League. But instead, the Athenian people oscillate between these two leaders, and not just those two, but others as well, over the course of this protracted struggle. And the result is that Athens uh, can't follow a consistent long-term strategy. So there's an important lesson here that domestic politics or domestic political scene has a big influence and impact on American grand strategy. We have to understand that the United States has great strengths, just like Athens does, but those strengths can be squandered if we can't also come up with a consensus, if we also can't come up with our own internal coherence to our American role in the world and how we want to go about achieving American purpose and goals uh, in the world. So this is a very important takeaway, is to look at the interaction between domestic politics and a country's behavior on the international scene. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really feel like we've learned a lot about this war. And yeah, I just thank you for taking the time out of your day. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I enjoyed being with you today. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can view our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org. Thank you to all our listeners out there. This is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review.